Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to 11 Pieces of Me, the show where we have guests come on to talk about their favourite players. Not always about the best players, but just players who have meant something to them growing up, um, ones who have given them memories and they're just going to take us down a trip down memory lane. I'm your host, Ali, and joining me as my co-host today is Mr. Guy Drinkle. How are, how are we, Guy? I'm good. How are you? Well, well, thank you. Thank you very much for joining me. It's been a while since the midweek shows. It has, it has. And I obviously did 11 pieces of me as well. And I mean, I, I just got, whilst I'm here, i got to add Mascarano to mine because now he's retired since then. So i got get to add that in. Is that a substitution? It is. I, I can't even. I can't even remember who was in my midfield, but Mascarano's going in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a fair addition. I think that's the thing with all our favourite players now at that age where they're retiring. Um, you, you almost want to change it every summer now. Anyway, yeah, exactly. Our guest tonight is one who I've wanted to have on for a while. He's the the, the first podcast I ever listened to almost seven years ago. Now um, was was this man on. Um, one of the, the founding voices of Anfield Index, it feels like, the the voice and the host of the Two-Footed Podcast, Mr. Dave Hendrick. How are we, Dave? I'm good, mate. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. This is um, much anticipated on my behalf anyway. Well, we've been trying to put this together now for about four years. <laughs> yeah. So I figured it was about time that we finally did this. I, I, do, I do feel this is right down your street. You know, like retired players, you know... Basically everything about most players these days. Um, I feel you can go on a almost on a, a spiel about every player you've got picked. Yeah, well, see, initially I had picked an eleven and I was very happy with it, and then it, it's been bugging me because we, we agreed to this about two weeks ago, and there's there was one player that I'd left out that it's been bugging me ever since that I'd left him out. So I've actually this morning I've changed my shape. And my uh, my eleven, but just for one player. Um, but yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited to do this. It's it's always nice to take a walk down memory lane. I've been quite nostalgic recently, looking back at some some of my favourite teams from the '90s and that. And um, so it's nice to have a chat about some of the players that were around that at that time. Yeah, '90s era seems to be the the special era for for a lot of us. Um, international tournaments. First time really getting to see foreign leagues, I feel. Mm. Um, yeah, so no, I think that's where... We, we keep talking recently about the, the 90s Brazilian teams, and I think you're a lot older than me, Dave, so you've probably seen maybe the, the older Brazilian team as well, but that 90s Brazilian team just gives people like... Even your guy as well, being a bit younger, have the most memories, you know, the Ronaldos, the Rivaldos. There just didn't, didn't seem to be anything like that these days. No, does not, and... You know, even there's a lot more footage of Maradona coming out now as well from the 80s and 90s. And you see the kicking he got. Yeah. And you just think, like, if that happened to a modern player, they'd be stretched off after 15 minutes. They'd be in the, in the hospital for about a fortnight and you wouldn't see them again for the rest of the season. And yet he put up with that every single game. Now, I should say on the, the topic of Maradona, in my view the greatest player of all time. I, I, You can have Messi, you can have whoever. I'll have Maradona forever. I've left him out of my 11, purely on the basis of his best years 
sort of came before I was really, you know, able to appreciate what he was. I saw the tail end of his career. He's the greatest player, in my view, of all time. I've seen loads of old footage of him, but I tried to stick with 11 players who were more prominent through my football watching time as opposed to just somebody I picked that, that I'd seen on video, etc. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I did with mine. The only exception I made was was Kenny Douglas, um, just purely on the, the Celtic-Liverpool basis. Mm. Scotland, obviously, as well for myself. Um, so that, that was my only cheat. But obviously, again, like the Maradona, we've seen enough footage. I felt like I could justify it enough. Um, anyway, Dave, what formation have you chosen? So, initially, I'd gone with my favourite, the best international team I've ever seen were the Germany team of 96 that won the Euros, that played with a sweeper back three, midfield five, with a, you know, two wing backs, two central midfielders, and a, and a 10, and then two up front. And initially I'd gone with that, but the more I thought of it, the formation that I, I care about the most, the one I've enjoyed the most, has always been a 4-4-2 that flexes to a box midfield. So if you think of the great Milan teams played a 4-4-2 that flexed flex to a box midfield. The Brazil team of 94 was a 4-4-2 that flexed to a box midfield. That incredible Lazio team, which had maybe the most balanced midfield we've ever seen, 4-4-2 flexed to a box midfield. And then for most of their iteration, the Galacticos era Madrid was 4-4-2 flexing to a box midfield with Figo and Zidane moving from wide wide starting positions to more narrow playmaking positions. So I've gone with a, with a 4-4-2 that flexes to a box midfield. I like it, right. Start us off with your goalkeeper then. So this one is largely because the guy who, who will be in a year or two isn't just retired yet uh, in Gigi Buffon, who I think is probably the best keeper of all time. But I've gone with Gianluca Pagliuca. Um, incredible in that early 90s Sampdoria team, world record fee to go to Inter in 94, part of that Italian team that got to the World Cup final in 94, famously spilled the ball onto the post and then kissed the post. Um, Made a bit of a comeback then to get back into the Italian squad for the 98 World Cup. Saw it his career being sensational for Bologna. A little bit error-prone, a little bit erratic at times, but an incredible shot stopper, off the charts athleticism. I, I just, I loved watching him play. I, I, he was just a fantastic goalkeeper. That's it. Yeah, I didn't expect that one. Um, it's a goalkeeper again, going back to the, you know, the Channel 4 show, Saturday mornings. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, yeah, one that stands out, the Inter Milan time was probably what, I don't really remember him much at the Bologna days. I don't know if that was maybe past my watching Serie A, you know, that was my, like, late teens to starting to go out more, probably not watching as much on TV, but um, definitely the, the Italian side and the, the Inter Milan. Um, I mean, Guy, do you remember much of how you got just slightly just before your time? Yeah, just before, I mean, before, it must have been the last World Cup, I think it was the History Channel that did a load of um, documentaries on, on all the World Cups through history, so I, I remember the kiss in the post scene just from that documentary. Um, 
It, he was the first real sweeper keeper as well. Like, n- not lunatic sweeper keeper like Higita or Jorge Campos, who'd be like stood on the halfway line knocking one twos about. But just in a team that played an aggressive, high pressing style under Ericsson at Sampdoria, he would live on the edge of his 18 yard box and just constantly be out clearing things up. So, stylistically as well, he's, he's just the type of keeper that I, I would have a preference for. Really good penalty stopper, if I remember right. Yeah, super, super athletic, great reflexes, and would just would just read things really, really well. Three World Cups for Italy, you know, it's there's no no mean feat there. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great choice. Yeah, to, totally forgot about the sweeper keeper. Yeah, but he was the one that you always, as you say, not quite the halfway line, but he was always almost aggressive and and letting his team play that bit further forward with the defensive line that bit higher up due to his confidence again from from behind especially in Italy at that time which was obviously well known as the defensive league and the defensive setup exactly and he was just he was quite different i mean that's a great era of italian goalkeepers if you consider peruzzi as well at that time um sensational goalkeeper gianluca marciana who won a title with Lazio, then Toldo came along a little bit later and Buffon. The 90s Italian goalkeepers were just of a, a very different class. And um, actually last season, Pagliuca, this, which has kind of aged me and made me feel very old, his son made his debut playing for Bologna. He's a young winger. He's like 18, 19 now. Um, he made his debut last season. So when when your, your favourite player's kids... <laughs> <laughs> are making their debuts, um, you will start to feel really, really old. Oh, God, yeah. Um, I, I suppose we kind of felt like that when Maldini came through, but I felt Maldini's always been the same age, so doesn't doesn't quite count the same. Um, I love that pick. Um, we'll move on to your right-back then, Dave, before... So the right-back I've gone with is Javier Zanetti. This was tough. This was between two. It was him or Lillian Turam. But I've gone with Zanetti. Longevity. I mean, the guy played right through till 2014. He played 19 years at Inter Milan, having arrived as a 22-year-old. So he didn't arrive as a 16, 17-year-old. He was 22 when he arrived. He was 41 when he stopped playing. Um, the first fullback I can ever remember that was a legitimate playmaker like we see with Trent now Zanetti was the hub of a really good Inter Milan team to the point where Manchester United when they were at their pump would play two left backs instead of a left back and left winger with the advanced left back just to man mark him just to stop him Mourinho moved him into midfield he won a Champions League there he's just he is Mr. Inter like, he is the best player I've seen play for Inter Milan. The level he was at, he was just sensational. Uh, he's now the president of the club. I think he's a phenomenal ambassador for the game. Was brilliant for Argentina as well. Could play as a fullback or as a wingback or like he showed later in his career in midfield. Um, yeah, Javier Zanetti is my right back. I thought you might pick him. Um I just seen your your Twitter post about him about being the 
the, the greatest right back of all time and possibly the greatest full back of all time. Um, yeah, a lot of folk have cheated having him in at left back um, in recent times, but I think there's no question how good Zanetti is as a just as a, as a, as a fullback in a whole, um, and just that that's solid. That, that for me, it's always that Inter Milan team of I think it was 2010 when Jose was there. Mm. But right, uh, that that was the time I probably noticed him the most, and just so consistent and just in, incredible going forward and and defensively. Yeah, just no flaws in his game. Brilliant on the ball, quick, strong, good in the air, good one v one defender. Read the game exceptionally well. And loyal to a fault. I mean, he had multiple opportunities to leave and go elsewhere when Inter were a bit of a lost cause pre-Calcio Poli, pre-Juventus getting relegated. He could have left a, multi- a, a, a bunch of times. He could have gone to Juve, could have come to England. Any club would have dropped whoever they had at right back to get him in. Uh, Real Madrid tried a couple of times. But he just, he loved life at, at Inter. He was Mr. Inter. So for me, yeah, I mean, Turam deserves mention because he's, as a defender, Turam was better, like an actual, just pure defender. But Turam split most of his career playing centre-back as opposed to right-back. So I've gone with the guy that played predominantly right-back. Yeah, yeah, I had I had Turam, yeah. I think I think it's always going to be between Turam, Cafu and, and Zanetti for, for these positions for, for most around our age. Uh, Guys, Zanetti for yourself? Yeah, I was just just looking back. I think the only time I would have seen him, because obviously growing up as a Liverpool fan, the Serie A 90s wave was kind of over when I was watching football. So I I was just Googling the game. That was 2008 when Liverpool played him, and I think he was in central midfield back then. And then that's pretty much the first time I would have seen him. So it's... It's just a name, and obviously speaking today of these last uh, few years, and he always speaks um, so positively about him and how he pretty much revolutionised the the position of, of fullback. And uh, yeah, we're seeing multiple fullbacks now, not just Trent. There's all of them across Europe are, are taking lessons from him, and yeah, a player that's played like three or four positions in his career and probably been world class in all of them. I, you don't you don't get that many uh, you don't get that much this day and age, do you? For for people that didn't see him, Josh Kimmich is probably the closest thing to him in the modern game. Just stylistically, Trent is more of a playmaker like he was, but Kimmich just stylistically, talent wise, is probably the closest. Now he's not he's not Zanetti. Kimmich is great, but he's not Zanetti. Yeah, I, I don't think yeah, there's much more to add on what you've said. And as I say, this, is, this was the only player I kind of expected to come in. Um, I probably would have expected Maradona, but you explained why um, earlier. So, yeah, what, who's the left-back then? Uh, the the left-back for me is a no-brainer. He's the greatest defender of all time. The best defender I ever saw by a country mile. Paolo Maldini, who made his Milan de- debut at six and was still in the team 24 years later. No, sorry. Yeah, 25 years later. Sorry, 25 years later. Um, Just sensationally consistent. Rarely had a bad game. Could play anywhere. Coming through the Milan Academy, he actually played right midfield. He was right-footed. 
they needed someone to fill it at left back. He got put there, and in his own words, I think they forgot that I was right-footed because he just developed an incredible left foot, just a sensational player, moved into central defence later in his career, played it like he'd been there all his life, played centre-back in a World Cup final and in a Champions League final because Costa Curta was suspended for both in 94. And again, it was just, it was a doddle for him. It was so easy. Um, great going forward. Didn't score as many goals as he probably would have wanted to score, but could beat players, had great pace. And literally any right winger of that era that came up against him just ended up in his pocket. Very few ever gave him any trouble. Yeah, I can't believe you were right-footed. I didn't know that. Um I, I had him in my team. I, I have Maldini as the best defender of all time. I know there's others, um, but for me, just the elegance, he made everything look so effortless. Um, like e- Even his goal in the Champions League final against us in, in 2005, mm. uh, just defending. I think he was the first defender to make me truly appreciate the art of defending. You know, it wasn't just about the goals. I, I enjoyed watching Maldini as much as I enjoyed watching, you know, your Ronaldo's, Rivaldo's of the world at the time. He just, he did everything so, just effortlessly. It's the, it's the best word you can use for him, is just the effortlessly and, and the elegance. He won his first Champions League in, in 89, and he won his fifth in 07. And he lost a couple of finals in between. Like, he was just incredible. And... The thing with him that always, like, I, I always say this. For me, I I think there's a more compelling argument that he's not just the best defender of all time, but the best footballer of all time than there is for the likes of Cristiano, who's a great goal scorer. But Maldini was an incredible defender, could play anywhere across the back line, could have played in midfield without any hassle at all. His career, what he won, how long he played, the level he, he played. I mean, in 07, in the Champions League final, he, he was sensational. Absolutely sensational in that game at the age of 39. That's ridiculous. Isn't you it? know, it was just insanity. And like the guy at right back, an incredible level of natural fitness, incredible consistency. Season to season, just always very, very good. More often great. And I just don't... Like, when you see the modern football, and there's a lot of talk now about Joe Canseo, and, you know, this guy is great, isn't he? He's brilliant. But is he? Show me the one season that he's put together from August till May where he's been great. He's been really good the last four months. He was average the first two months of the season. And it's always been the issue, not just with Joe say, but with modern footballers. They don't do it from August till May. We see players, they have a, a poor couple of months, then a great couple of months, then a poor couple of months. And everybody's like, oh, what a great season he had. But he didn't. He had a great run in the middle of the season. And the start and end were poor. But Maldini, Zanetti, and, and the guys I'm going to go through, August to May, year on year... These guys were just different class. Yeah, that's that's the biggest difference as well. Not just not just one good season because like for for us we were probably quite happy to say the last two seasons Trent's had almost extraordinary, you know, seasons. But we're seeing this year, and that's the difference. 
between like your Zanetti, your Maldini. These guys are having this five, six year in a row. They might have the odd, you know, wobble here and there, but it's never for long periods of time. Um, I mean, Guy, Maldini, obviously much more prominent in your mind than than the previous two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think when you think of defender, like even now you get the uh, the wrong leaf thing about him and... Uh, Baresi, where they only conceded like five goals in twenty years or something like that, which is obviously made up. But <laughs> if it if it got well, to that stage, people that believe that, <laughs> yeah, which probably <laughs> sums up the level, sums up the level that that Milan team had. And Maldini, I mean, I remember him from two cup, uh, Champions League finals, and yeah, he's, as you say, won his first one in eighty nine, and I, I'm watching him as a ten year old in 05 and then the twelve year old in 07. It's like. What? That's just, that's crazy. It's crazy. I, I, it, these, I think these like players like Zanetti and Maldini, you just don't get them anymore. Like, I mean, the last one in English football was probably Giggs. Giggs, yeah, yeah. And, and and even with Giggs, Giggs had like a lot of injury problems earlier in his career, and he was a squad player towards the end. Yeah, and that's the, that's the thing. Whereas these two boys were every game starters. Now, admittedly, Maldini's, you know three of his last four seasons he did have some injury problems but through his career he was just incredibly consistent when he was out of the team it was generally to rest it wasn't because he was injured um it was just he was just oh he was phenomenal absolutely phenomenal yeah i mean he made his milan debut the year i was born i mean that that just sums it up for me i've just grew up basically not knowing anything other than maldini appeals you know as i said the I'm quite happily go along with the the argument Maldini would go down as the greatest footballer of all time as well, Dave. People kind of look at me sideways when when I make that because they all tend to look for the the attacking players. Mm. Whereas, as you say, Maldini had it all. Genuinely, maybe could have scored more goals, but that wasn't his job. He didn't care about that. Um, he, he felt his job was defending and. Um, the, even the the line, whether it's fake or, or true, that if he made a slide tackle, you know, he felt he was out of position. Um, and the way he defended is very iconic to that that, that remark. Yeah, I mean, he the, the whole thing was like, if I have to make a tackle, I've made a mistake. That's just him being hypercritical about himself. He obviously did make a lot of tackles in his career. But his point was, he was always holding himself to the highest standard. He didn't celebrate big slide tackles or last-ditch tackles. He wanted to be in position first, nick the ball away and away up the field because he, he just wanted to be perfect. Because you have to remember what it, like the lineage that he comes from. His dad yeah. is Cesare Maldini, who's, who's a legend at Milan. So he came in with massive shoes to fill. And, I mean, the guy's, the guy's number is retired by AC Milan. Yeah, that's right enough. You, you kind of felt sorry for these kids coming through because the pressure that they, they must have felt, um, you know, when your granddad and then your dad are, are complete legends. Um, it just, it must be something else. Well, he's got he's got two sons that are players. Dan, uh, Daniel Maldini is, is currently in the Milan squad um, and Christian Maldini is his older kid. Now, Christian's a centre-back. He came through at Milan... He's now playing in like the lower leagues. I don't know much about him, but he, he hasn't reached the level. But Daniel Maldini had the right idea. His grandfather was a great defender. 
his dad is the best defender of all time. So he went and became an attacking midfielder. He's like, no, I'm not having the comparisons. Yeah, I'm done. I'm done with that. I'm going to go stand up the other end of the field. <laughs> and I'm just going to be my own player. And credit to him, he's, he, he looks a very promising player. Whether he ever you know, reaches anything close to, to greatness, we, we'll have to wait and see. He's only 19. But, I mean, you're not going to get... Uh, obviously, Cesare died uh, five years ago or so, but you know he would have had his input for a long time as a kid, and and now he can call on on his dad anytime he wants because obviously his dad works in a senior position at Milan, and you know is just a, a font of knowledge, a font of wisdom, and can guide him when he comes along, you know, to any pitfalls in his career. Yeah, absolutely. As you say, the this, the young one made the smart choice: get away from defence as quick as possible. Um, no one needs that pressure. Um, that's this is an imperious back four so far. Um, who's in the centre then? Which is your first centre back? First centre back is Alessandro Nesta, who is just the perfect defender, perfect centre back, six two six three, quick, elegant, strong, great on the ball great recovery pace, dominant in the air, could just put any defend, any attacker he wanted in his pocket. Was in, was part of that Lazio team I mentioned earlier, which is one of my favourite teams of all time. Then went to Milan and was a legend there. Was a legend for the national team. Just, just a phenomenal, perfect defender. Like if you were in a lab creating the perfect centre-back, it would be Alessandro Nesta. Like for people... People that look at Rafa Varane and think, oh, God, he he's perfect. Like, he's a poor man's Nesta. As good as Varane is, he's the poor man's Nesta. Yeah, just, again, it just the it just shows where the defensive talent was that we had growing up. The, 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 as you say, the Lazio team, then, then in Milan. Obviously, I didn't see him much at, at Montreal and Chennai uh, and after that, obviously, but... The, the Nestas, the Maldinis, you know, even even Berezi just slightly before that, like Italy have just been blessed with mm. with elite level defenders and and yeah, as you say, Nesta was is close to perfect if you're if you're molding somebody together um, that there was. Um, the, I'm I'm trying to think of the Lazio team as much like even memories that I could see. Obviously, I just remember I'm being part of it, but. There's nothing that stands out. The the obviously the Milan side is where he stands out most for me. More so, obviously, where the the two Champions League finals is as guy guy mentioned when we were talking about Maldini. Um, that just, that Lazio team was Marcajani in goal, uh, Negro at right back, Favalli at left back, Nesta, and Mihailovic, Sinisa Mihailovic at centre back, sensational. Stejan Stankovic played on the right side of midfield. Pavel Nedved played on the left side. And then you had Juan Diego Simeone in the middle of the midfield. Veron as the, you know, the playmaker. Simeone doing all the dirty work. Would flex from that 4-4-2 into a box midfield with Stankovic and Nedved coming central. And the two fullbacks were conservative. They weren't attack-minded fullbacks, but they'd get forward and they'd support. And Mihailovic would be pinging balls here, there, and everywhere, and and it would be left to Nesta to do a lot of the defensive work, and he just did it effortlessly. Uh, up front, they would have had Marcelo Salas, um, Alan Boxic was there. The following year, the year after they won the title, they were actually even better because they brought in Hernan Crespo 
from Parma and Claudio Lopez from Valencia, where he'd almost won the Champions League. But unfortunately for them, bringing in, in Crespo cost them their depth in midfield because they had to let Sergio Conceição, who'd been the backup on both wings, and Matias Almeida, who'd been the backup in central midfield, they had to let them go to get Crespo. They broke the world record to get Crespo at the time. And while the starting eleven was better, it affected their depth. But, I mean, they had Nestor Sensini as a depth centre-back. They had Fernando Couto as a depth centre-back. It was just an incredible team that Ericsson put together. Unfortunately, there was a castle built on sand because it came out a couple of years later. They'd been borrowing money at a ridiculous rate, almost similar to what happened with Leeds, with Peter Ridsdale. And they had no facility to pay it back. So the club almost went bust and they ended up having to sell um, Nesta and, and all the rest of them as well. But Nesta never wanted to leave. He he tried desperately to stay at Lazio. He offered to play for much less wages than he was on, but they were desperate for the money. And Milan were, were very, very happy to swoop in and steal him away. And um, they paid roughly about I want to say about 18 million euro, maybe a little bit more. Um, but that, that was in like 2002. Yeah. So back then, that was an awful lot of money for a centre-back. And I mean, like Milan got great return on their investment. He played for them for a decade. So they weren't going to complain. Yeah, I mean, I think if you just look at that, like he, he joined Lazio in youth. Um, in 85, you know, left in 2002, as you say, he didn't want to leave. And then another 10 years at Milan, I think loyalty is high up on his, you know, on his radar as well. And I mean, 18 million euros, I know it was back in 2002, but I mean, what does that get you now? The right foot of a decent centre-half? Exactly. I mean, like, when you see Harry Maguire's going for 80, 80 million, there's talk for this summer that Tyron Mings could be 40 million. I mean, that guy can't play. And people want to pay 40 million for him. It is. It's it's madness to see. Like, like Ozan Kabak is a, is a good, promising, young centre-back that Liverpool have brought in. And 18 million is seen as a bargain for him. Yes. Whereas 20 years ago, 18 million was buying you a 26-year-old Nesta in his prime. Like, the closest thing to him now in the game is Van Dijk, who was 75 million at around the same age. Yeah, it just... It's where modern... 75 million pounds as well, not, yeah, not euros. That, but it's where modern football's gone completely wrong. Um, I mean, Guy, barring the Champions League finals, um, any memories of Nesta? I mean, he played on a little longer than Maldini. Yeah, I was just I was just checking there, so I thought I may have seen him in the 2006 World Cup, but I think he missed the final through injury, but they were kind of lucky with that because Matarazzi got Zidane sent off, so that kind of worked out for him. Um, but no, again, it's probably the the Champions League finals, and again, growing up, growing up in the uh, the the noughties, and I know I never really had access to um, Serie A. I mean, I'm probably of the La Liga generation, unfortunately, because I yeah. never never really liked La Liga that much. Yeah, I kind of moved to, to La Liga again about the same time, just purely for the, the Galacticos side. Um, I, ju I just love the white kits, as I mentioned. But, yeah, that uh, 
the, the late early mid to late nineties was just so enjoyable as a football fan. Um, that a lot of a lot of young ones now just don't understand how good the likes of Lazio, Parma, even Fiorentina were back then. Um, mm. And just the players to come out of that league. Um, and it's nice to see it getting starting to get a wee bit more recognition again. It is quite enjoyable nowadays as well. So it's nice to see the league um, from a from a sentimental side anyway getting getting more love again. Uh, I don't know if you feel the same, Dave. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. I mean, you know, you look back at history and Serie A from, say, 86, when English football, you know, post-Heisel English football, there was no European competition, so they couldn't attract the best overseas players. Serie A just exploded and took off, and you had that great Milan team, you had Maradona's Napoli, you yeah, had the... The Sampdoria team with Viali and Mancini that, that won the league and got to a Champions League final, or a European Cup final before it became the Champions League. You mentioned Fiorentina with Rui Costa and, and Batistuta. Um, you had the, the two great Parma teams, the one that had Zola, Aspria, and Thomas Brawling up front, and then the second one that had Buffon, Turam, Cannavaro. You had the, the Lazio team I've mentioned. You had that Roma team that Capello built. You had Lippi's Juventus through the 90s, Capello's Juventus through the 90s. You had then Capello's, um, you, Capello's Juventus when he went there. And you had Ancelotti's AC Milan team. Like, up until Calciopoli in, in 2006, which culminated, funnily enough, with, uh, with Italy going on to win the World Cup while there was so much... Uh, uncertainty about the future of the league and Juventus were getting relegated and having titles taken off them. Milan were initially relegated, then reinstated, put back into the Champions League and would then win the Champions League yeah. when in truth they should never even been in the competition that year. But from that that 07 season is probably the end of that incredible era of Serie A from 06 till then, from 86 till then. No league has been able to dominate like that. Like we've seen spells where the Premier League dominates. We've seen, obviously, a decade of La Liga dominance in European competition, but you go back and look, the European Cup, the Cup Winners' Cup, which we don't have anymore, unfortunately, and the UEFA Cup, which is now the Europa League, Italian clubs dominated. There was multiple years where the UEFA Cup final was Italian club versus Italian club, and there'd be an Italian club in the Champions League final. It it was just remarkable how dominant the league was, the players that were there, the money that was involved. And unfortunately, when, you know, the Calciopoli followed by the economic, the global economic crisis did spoil the league. I mean, it, it's the one that suffered the most. And if we talk now about the big five leagues, it's it's obviously behind the Premier League. It's behind La Liga. It's arguably behind the Bundesliga as well. And it's, you know, it's above the French League. But, I mean, it used to be clear number one and everybody else. And now it's it's fourth. It's the fourth league. And, you, you know, Juventus have dominated it for the last nine years in a row. This year we're seeing some competitive uh, a competitive title challenge. Inter are going to, you know, are, are look like they might win the league. Milan are strong. Juve may have to rebuild now. But Lazio are good, Atalanta are good. It's an entertaining league again. 
there's players that are worth watching, there's teams that are worth watching, and it's taken 15 years to get back to this point because of you know financial mismanagement, the the global crisis, COVID. It, it's it's been tough on on Italian football, and you know the other the other part of it as well is like you see a lot of clubs play in these crumbling old stadiums and they've never had the money to redo it. One of the things that's really eye-catching about the Premier League is the quality of the stadiums. Yeah. In Serie A, the stadiums, aesthetically, they look brilliant, but they don't have the facilities. So clubs aren't making as much money on match day income. And obviously the TV income is not there either. But it is great to see the league start to pick itself up, start to be competitive again. And hopefully, hopefully we see you know, Italian football get back to where it was. Because for me, when it was, when Italian football ruled the world, that's when football was at its best. I don't think the game has been anywhere near the same level over the past 15, 16 years. Yeah, I agree. I'd say I think probably the most enjoyable for me was was the late 90s, early noughties. Um, Probably my favourite time, just in life in general. Maybe just the age I was at at the same time as well. But yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And obviously, the more we highlight like how good Serie A is becoming. Hopefully, that's where the TV money will go back into that league as well because more people will want to watch it, so more TV stations will probably pick it up. Um, mm. Final defender then, Dave? Uh, the final defender is Barese. Just <laughs> a, a sensational footballer. Um, arguably the greatest centre-back of all time. Five foot nine. Not a particularly explosive athlete. Very quick, but, you know... Not a presence in the air, really, but read the game at an extraordinary level, could take any attacker and just mark them out of the game, would make these lung-bursting runs deep into the opposition territory just at the drop of a hat, played at the highest level till he was 37, 20 years in the Milan first team. Just, for me, a, a ridiculous player, um, won a World Cup in in '82 with Italy, and was still going strong in the mid '90s. Like, it just just a tremendous player. Rarely injured. Rarely played less than 40 games in a season. When you know the European Cup and that was a major thing for Milan. Um, captained that incredible Milan team that won the back-to-back cups, then captain the Milan team that that beat, um, well, he, he missed the final because he was suspended, but the the team that would go on to beat Barcelona's dream team in 94, he was just, he was just different. Known as the little one, because again, five foot nine. Think about that, five foot nine playing centre-back. Now we look at people who are six one, six two, and go, oh, they're a bit short for a centre-back. <laughs> but the Italians didn't care. I mean, he was 5'9". Cannavaro was 5'9". He was he was one I did consider, but wasn't quite of the, of, of the level of, of Nesta or, or Brazi. But he was great, though. Like, don't get me wrong, Cannavaro was great. But these two were just a little bit better. Um, you know, 5'9", five, five, and skinny, <laughs> playing centre-back. And just running games from centre-back, different class, absolutely different class. Yeah, like three World Cups, you know, a winner, runner-up, bronze medal, you know, 500-plus appearances for Milan, um, 80-odd 
caps for, for Italy, as you say, played till he was 30, 37, did you say? Mm. You know, like, there's no chance, even in today's world, 37-year-olds aren't playing at the highest level. You know, teams teams are looking away from them. And it, again, I, I, do, I do put this down to, like, the, the Italian upbringing they've got. They, they just don't seem to age the same as <laughs> the rest of the world. Um, just, yeah, just no nonsense. Yeah, in the conversation for, for greatest centre-half of all time, comfortably. Um, captain your club, captain your country. Um, as you say, the injuries were, were rarely there. Um I, I, what I, what I was going to add when you when you called them the little one, I, I love how Italian leagues and teams have all these little names nicknames for their players. <laughs> every every player's got one. They're hysterical. Um, but again, just I think have Milan not retired his shirt number as well? Am I am I wrong about that? Um, but yeah, just just a great pick. I'm going to break the fourth wall slightly, guy. Um, yeah, I, w- I wasn't going to ask. I thought it was just before your time. I was expecting the fake, the fake start one as well. Um, hmm. but, but yeah, like his I number mean, is retired, by the way. Just check. Yeah, it is. Yeah, three, three and six. It retired at Milan. That says everything you need to know about both those players. Um, I mean, I, I'd imagine Nestor's probably would have been retired too if he had been there his whole career as well. It just, again, just the the magnitude of those two players. There's three of you, including Nestor. I mean that's decades of Milan defending. Anybody who who supports Milan, like younger ones who came through, must must have wondered again, like what's what's happened to their team. Obviously, they're much better today than they have been for the for the previous ten years. Um, but the teams that they had um, right through the right through the nineties, early noughties was just phenomenal. And and Baresi and, and, and Maldini were synonymous with that from from the late eighties, basically. Yeah, from that Saki team um, through Capello, then obviously Baresi retires in 97. Maldini stays. He's there through the Ancelotti years. He retires. Then obviously Nesta has arrived. He stays till like 2012. When he was leaving, Thiago Silva was the kind of the main man in defence at the time. Thiago Silva was great. But you look at Milan since then, and it's been... You know, I mean, Ram Ramagnoli's good. He's not great, but he's you know he's good. He's capable of being very good. But like Simon Kiar is considered a, a good Milan defender now, and it just shows. You know, from '77 to 2012, they had Baresi, Maldini, Ornesta at one time. They they had them all. You know, for that that what is that 25 years, 35 years, 35 years, they had one of those three at all times in the defence. And and now they have Simon Kerr. So it, it does kind of speak to the drop-off uh, of AC Milan. But like you say, they are getting better now. This is the best season they've had in, in a long time. And funnily enough, they are led by a man also playing well into his late 30s in Zlatan. Um, it's just a shame he can't show the centre-backs how to defend properly. Yeah. Um, it, it's, again, it's probably Dave, just not even a Milan. I mean... It's Italian defenders in general. I mean, they just haven't really produced anything of the same um, since that. Um, it's very strange. No, no, they haven't. I mean, Benucci, the the the, the Juventus BBC, Barzagli, Benucci, Cellini, they were great, and individually and collectively they were great. But aside from that, it really is slim pickings. 
for 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 Italian defenders. And and now, I mean, Rugani never developed the way they expected him to. Caldaris had a bunch of injuries. Ram Magnoli didn't become the player he was expected to be. There's some good young ones like Bastoni, who's at Inter, is super talented, and he's I think he's only 20, 21. And he looks like he's got a massive future and working under Conte obviously will help. But it's, it's not just in, in that regard, it's also the managers. I mean, think of the names that, that I've mentioned here. Saki, an all-time great. Capello, an all-time great. Lippi, an all-time great. You know, they had Ericsson there at his very, very best. Ancelotti was there when he was great as well. These were great, great managers. And now you, you kind of look at Syria and, you know, Conte's obviously a, a great manager um, who, who's had success in Italy and in the Premier League. Um, Allegri's out of football at the moment. Sarri is more a cult figure than a great manager. Great idealist. Gasparini's kind of the same. They're not producing the same level of managers as they were either. You know, you think back to those 90s era and you had like Capello on the sideline in his Armani suit looking, just looking like someone who would, you know, come knock on your door to tell you that you owed his boss quite a lot of money. (laughs) Lippi sitting there smoking cigars, also (laughs) head to toe in Armani. There was just something about that era. um, And the managers were, were a big part of that. I mean, the great managers now, they're in England, you know, Pep, Klopp. Um, obviously Conte was here for a couple of years. You know, the great players are in England. It's strange. Italian football across the board has suffered. The managers haven't been the same. The players haven't been the same. Yeah, no, that's fair. And as we said, with uh, the TV rights and the the eyes being back on, hopefully, you know, it develops back on because obviously we want all leagues being successful because it just makes the game in general um, better better for all. Um, I don't think you actually need any more defensive players, Dave. So you could pretty much put six strikers now, and you'll be you'll be fairly safe. But um, who's the first first midfielder you're going to go with? So I'll start in the middle of midfield. Um, this is of of my era of watching football. This is the man I believe to be the greatest captain, the greatest leader, the greatest winner that I've seen. Just someone whose sole purpose was based on winning football matches and very little else mattered for Manchester United, for the Republic of Ireland, Roy Keane. Um, Often overlooked for what an incredibly talented footballer he was when he came through at Nottingham Forest. He was a goal-scoring midfielder. Moved to United, was a a box-to-box dynamic player. Tore his ACL and became more of a sitting midfielder. Well, was was just was a very talented footballer, good passer of the ball, incredible reader of the game, hard as nails, obviously, just would tackle anything and anybody, always up for a bit of a scrap, never, ever willing to accept defeat, and put in two of the best performances I've ever seen. For Ireland against the Netherlands in the game where Jason McAteer scored, um, Roy Keane was the best player on the pitch that day by an absolute country mile. And for Manchester United in 99, in Turin, he gets booked early on. United looked like they're going out at the semi-final stage. And Keane carried them, carried them to victory. 
missed the Champions League final because he was suspended, but you know, didn't sulk, didn't let his head drop, just carried that team to victory. And to me, just a one of one. You're not going to find another one like Roy Keane. Sunes was similar, but he's before my time. And everything you you, you read about Sunes, you hear about Sunes, and you talk to players that played with him. Sunes was very, very similar. Probably a more talented footballer. Sunes an incredible passer of the ball. But Keane could just drag a team to victory and did it for years at United. So, yeah, Roy Keane, centre midfield. Yeah, I, I fully expected this one. And quite right, everything you've said, I'm glad you mentioned the, the Milan performance because for me, that's the, the single-handed greatest centre midfield performance I've ever seen. I've watched 90-minute game. What he did in that game was extraordinary. And, and as you say, being suspended, I just don't know how many players... They, they might always tell you that they wouldn't have changed the way they play, but I don't think there's a, a midfielder in the world who would have put in that, that level of commitment um, to carry your team through to a Champions League final, knowing that you weren't going to play. Mm. I, I just really don't. And Also, you, like, you're one of the few people who actually mention... He was actually a very good footballer when he first signed for United before he became the you know, the defensive, like dirtier side of the game. He genuinely was a very good box to box midfielder when he first signed them. Yeah. Oh absolutely. I mean at Forest, that's what what he was doing. He played three years at Forest. He scored eleven goals his first year, fourteen his second year, and eight the third year. And in his first season at United he scored eight goals. Then he was just asked to play a deeper role. And his goals dropped off, though in 99-2000, in he did score 12 goals in 45 games, which is fairly impressive. Yeah. But the, the thing about Keane as well is, I mean, he played centre-back at times. And he was, Roy Keane is 5'10". Yeah. I've, I've met Roy Keane. I'm not, I, I'm not six foot, but I'm taller than Roy Keane. And, like, Roy Keane is quite slightly built as well. He, he, he appears bigger than he actually is. He's, he's not a big guy, but he just has this, this strength and the strength of character to him that it didn't matter where he was asked to play, he would just slot in, do a job, and be be phenomenal. And um, and he was. He was phenomenal for Forrest, phenomenal for United, phenomenal for Ireland. And, I mean, there's, there's definitely a little bit of bias because I'm Irish, but for me, he's the best midfielder the Premier League has seen. You can have Gerrard, you can have Scholes, you can have Lampard, you can have them all. None of them are on the level of Roy Keane. As yeah. a captain, a leader, and a winner... Puts them all in the bin. Yeah, oh, I fully agree. I'm, I'm on your side. It's, it's always my answer when anybody asks me, though, even just the Gerard Lampard debate. Guy, a player you can you can contribute on. This is one you'll see many a time. Yeah, it's great. I can actually talk. <laughs> <laughs> I hate Roy King, mainly because he was mint. Um, he kind of ruined many of my childhood games. Although Danny Murphy like rescued a lot of games for me in my childhood <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> um but no, what an excellent player. Um pure television nowadays as well. <laughs> on the the old punditry game where I'm pretty sure he's just trying to annoy people at this stage. But it's it it's a strange one with it because like I when I was watching him he was probably in that defensive midfield stage. Yeah. Um and him skulls gigs and Beckham I mean that was probably the most iconic midfield of the Premier League. Probably still mm. is to be to be honest. Um it was perfect. Yeah, it and it it it, it it's scary to think like 
I know it was towards the end and he went on to Celtic and I'm not sure how well he did up there, but like <laughs> he, he he fell out with like Sir Alex Ferguson and stuff when he was still captain of the team, so his legend could have been even bigger at United. He hasn't spoken to Alex Ferguson in 15 years. He hasn't spoken to Ferguson since he left. Like, he just, he said he'll only speak to money about when Ferguson apologizes. Um, (laughs) And it's, it's, it's such a shame because they were so, so linked, so similar, so driven. Like, Keane was Ferguson on the pitch. You know, he's the one that, that brought what Ferguson wanted onto the pitch and it's one of the great sliding doors moments in Premier League history. He had agreed to sign for Blackburn under Kenny Dalglish, the Blackburn that had Alan Shearer up front, Chris Sutton, uh, Jason Wilcox, Stuart Ripley, Tim Sherwood. They were adding Roy Keane to that. Mm. If he joined Blackburn, I think Blackburn probably go on and win three or four Premier Leagues rather than one. And I don't think United would have had anything close to the success that they had. But like, Guy's right. The the most iconic midfield of the Premier League era is Beckham, Keane, Scholes, Giggs. The most iconic rivalry of the Premier League era is Arsenal versus Manchester United. Mm-hmm. Vieira versus Keane. They made a documentary about it. Yeah, just off that, yeah. You know, he, that era of the Premier League, late 90s, early 2000s, those two teams were just phenomenal. The quality of football, but when they play each other, it would descend like it would be, would be a war, and then a game of football might break out to the side. You don't but get that anymore. So not it's it's it's, it's not it's allowed a, anymore. No. This is why, like my argument against Ronaldo or Messi being the best player of all time is the game is so badly skewed to enabling the attacker. The rules have been changed so much all in favour of the attacking players. Like, you can't tackle really anymore. You know, you couldn't have had Keenan and, <laughs> and Fier. There's a video a video you'll find on Twitter. It's it's Roy Keane against Vinnie Jones from about 95. <laughs> Not saw that they were there. And the two of them kick each other up in the air about three times and just get up and get on with it. It, it just wouldn't happen now. They both have been sent off about six times each game. But your club gets fined now if, like, you have a verbal altercation. <laughs> mm. It's the game is like, I know I sound like an elfler, but the game has gone soft. It just is. And while it's still enjoyable, it's not as enjoyable as it was back then, where, where it was just the last there time was a there hardness was a, to the game. The last time there was a mad game like that, it was what the battle of the bridge between Spurs and nothing really happened in comparison to what used to happen. Now, there's a few handbags thrown. <laughs> yeah. That's about it. Like. You, the, the you most couldn't life. have it now. Like, did any? Did you see at the weekend? Um, uh, Bournemouth and Watford. There was a bit of shenanigans at the end of it, and a couple of players got sent off. But like, there was no slaps thrown. There was nothing. There was nobody grabbing each other by the collar. It was just a bit of shoving and a bit of mouthing. And like, lads are getting sent off for that. Roy Keane would have been sent off every game if that was what <laughs> what the rules were. Yeah, Roy, Roy Keane would have had no career whatsoever. Um, with VAR involved as well. Um, again, I suppose that's just what the TV the TV rights we've kind of brought it on ourselves. You know, we want the money involved in the game. We want all these players, um, and unfortunately, Sky just had far too much to say about it. Which then, you know, FIFA gets the the old rule book out and amended to suit. That's the thing. Like, 
the Champions League, the Premier League, etc. They're, they're they're trying to attract more of a family audience than you know back in the in the nineties and two thousands where it was predominantly you know men between the ages of eighteen and forty nine. That was the demographic. Now they want families, they want kids, they want wives, they want them all at the game. A big part of that is because wives and kids will spend more money in the in the stadium than a fellow who'll just go and buy a pint and then that'll be the height that he'll just head home afterwards. Whereas, you know, and, and, and I know this for a fact, I'm not just saying this to try and be funny, but wives and kids will want to go to the gift shop. They'll want to get food. They want to do a little bit more. They want more of an overall experience. And it's it's the same thing that happened in, in American sport 10 years previously, where the NFL changed its, its culture took out a lot of the helmet to helmet hits in the NBA they tried to clean up the the image of the game and it saw an explosion in TV rights because more families became involved more families went to the games and the same thing has happened to football but as well as that the players are just they're molly called a little bit too much more like you think back to when you hear stories of players from the the 80s and 90s going through their academy process and the YTS scheme it was an apprenticeship so you swept the stands, you cleaned boots, you cleaned kits. That doesn't happen anymore. There's no young fella at Liverpool who's, who's 16 years of age cleaning the boots. There's, there's men employed to do that now. They don't clean the kits. Again, there's men employed to do that now. Yeah, I, I've just finished... Multiple employed to, to do those jobs now. Whereas back then, it wasn't the case. Yeah, I've just finished listening to Joey Barton's book. Um, and like he, that's the one thing that he mentioned. He's like, just... The, the youth academy, the players coming through, they just don't realise how easy they've got it. And, and it's why a lot of them won't break in, because they're not hungry enough. Because they, they're earning thousands, they're, they're turning up to, to train and have a good time and, you know, play some youth football, whereas, like, against, without sounding like they're really old, like back in our day when those guys were coming through, they're, they're cleaning boots, they're cleaning, you know, changing rooms. They're, they're delicate players that they've got to look after, carry bags for. Um, whilst only earning hundreds of pounds, like still a lot of money, but you know they were they were earning their keep. Put it that way. But like you, you if you ever watch the class of '91 documentary and read read books like Forever Young by um, by Oliver Oliver Kay, um, talking about young players in that class of '91 team when they were in the first team, like breaking into the first team, 18, 19 years of age earning a couple of hundred quid a week at the, at the most, living in shared houses. Now kids come through 18 years of age, get themselves an agent, 15 grand a week contract. It's just, it's spoiling players. It, but you see, you see what's unfortunate. The... And look, I'm not against it because I, I want players to make as much as they can, but it has spoiled the game a bit. And you see some of the better, better ones, like Trent, for instance. He's probably the best British youngster to come through. Or English mm. youngster to come through. Well, added with Sancho, etc. But Trent still, I think he's still living with his parents. Yeah. So it's the ones who go outside the norm now are the ones in the best area to succeed. I'd say. Uh, do you know a big part of that guy? That's actually really important. Trent is obviously from Liverpool, so it's easy for him to live with his parents. A lot now, it's a lot more. What we see is kids from London who end up in academies in Manchester or from Manchester end up in academies in London and their families are so far away. So they mm -hmm. don't have that grounding. 
when they come home in the evening, they're not getting told to, you know, put their clothes away to do this, to do that. It's it's a different mindset. It's in a way, kids have been asked to grow up a bit too quickly, yeah. but at the same time, they're also not being asked to grow up quickly enough. Like they're molly coddled too much at the club, and it it's just. It's unfortunate, but like it is what it is. We, you, we, we can't go backwards. We shouldn't go backwards because there was a lot of stuff that took place again in those academies in the 80s and 90s where it was there was a lot of bullying took place where like second and third year apprentices were bullied the first years. You know, there's, there's a story about Paul Scholes getting put into a, a tumble dryer and it was turned on and he had chronic asthma. Do you know, like that type of thing can't be allowed to happen, but. You know, attempted at time, murder is probably a bit, yeah, a bit of a stretch. A far, like. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, like it wouldn't do a young fella any harm when he's 17, 18 and maybe starting to get a little bit of shine to have him clean a set of boots. Yeah. To have him go and cut grass with the with the with the ground staff, to, to have him involved in the fabric of the club where he'll get more of an appreciation. I mean, these great young players that we see coming through now, like the likes of Trent. He's a he's a rarity. Like you look at Sancho, Sancho's already been in like three or four different clubs. Rian mm. Brewster was at three or four different academies. And a big part of it is parents living vicariously through their kids. Yeah. And like, oh, you're not getting enough opportunity in that academy. So I'm gonna move you to this other academy. Whether it's it's good for your career or not, you're gonna get more games. You yeah. might not get the level of coaching, but you'll get more games. And then these clubs are taking in these players and going, Oh, are we so lucky to have them? Like we're so lucky to have this 16-year-old that we don't know whether he's going to make it or not. I, one thing I'd like to see, like just on the, the wage structure, as you said, if we want them to be paid and earn a living, especially mm. when you know there's players who they're probably better than even at a young age, you know, earning hundreds of thousands. But I think maybe cap their wage so they're only getting almost like pocket money. The rest gets put into savings until they're you know, first team regulars, and then they get it all as a, in a chunk sort of thing. So, but maybe up until they're 21, they're only allowed a maximum well, X amount it, sort of thing. Yeah, and put the rest into a pension fund for them. Yeah. Like, I actually I actually think that's what should happen for all players because we hear so many horrible stories about players going bankrupt and whatever because they've, you know, they've lived outside their means or they've developed a gambling habit. I actually do think that, say, you know, a certain percentage, even if it's 20% of a player's wages, should be put in a long-term fund for them where it'll build interest. And when they turn 45 or whatever, that money will be there for them and they'll have a nest egg, something to live off. Because it is a short career. I mean, most players are done by 35. You've got 50 years of living after that. So, you know, it, it, it can be very tough to to live off no income, to go from all the money to no money. And it's also why we end up with so many bad pundits as well. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's the key reason we want to give them the pension. That's the main reason. <laughs> uh, right then, who's partner in Mr. Keane? Fernando Redondo. Um, Argentinos Juniors, Tenerife, Real Madrid and AC Milan. Uh, to me, the greatest defensive midfielder of all time. I've got Keane in more for a box to box. I'm going for young Keane. Box to box. Fernando Redondo, just sensational. Positionally, on the ball, everything about him was perfect. I mean, you watch Bus I I'm I've been banging the drum about Busquets 
for a decade now about what a great player he is. But for me, the best defensive midfielder I've still ever seen is Redondo. He was just perfect. And unfortunately, injury spoiled the latter part of his career. Uh, when he went to Milan, he, he should have been, you know, part of that that Milan team that won the Champions League in 93, or in 2003. And he, and he was part of the squad, but he was barely able to play for them. But just gifted. And again, one who put on one of the greatest displays I've ever seen, went to Old Trafford with, with Real Madrid and just embarrassed United over and over again on the night. He, he was just incredible. And the first midfield pairing I ever actually fell in love with was was him and someone else who's going to be in this team now in, in, a, in a couple of minutes. Um, they were just, he was just fantastic. Defensively, great on the ball, could literally do everything you'd ask him to do. And, and yeah, I've just a wonderful footballer and always, always, always going to be in my all-time 11. Yeah, he was part of the team that I first, obviously Liverpool, my first love. Um, but again, I had family stayed in Liverpool, um, and I was I was meant to be a Rangers and Man United fan. That's what my dad was. That's what all my family were. I had one uncle that stayed in Liverpool who would just send me sly videos and books, and so they were the team that I loved. But Real Madrid were the first team I fell in love with, just watching the pure white kit. Um, obviously, the players they had, and and Redondo was part of that. Um, the the league the league wins in the the mid the mid I mid nineties it was um, the Champions League wins um, just I didn't know he went in well I knew he went to Milan but I, I don't know much of his career at all so I'm glad you said there was there was injuries in there but mm-hmm. as a holding midfielder um, as part of that Madrid team was just sensational um, and I just I just love seeing him in that pure white kit it's my it's one of my favourite memories the 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 Teca one the Teca sponsored one with a black ball, yeah. just, just sensational. Um, and I mean, we obviously we had that Madrid team, which was slowly becoming the Galacticos in that era, and having such a, just such a great defensive midfielder was key. He he got in when, when Capello went there in '96. I want to say I'd have to look it up, but when Capello went there, anyway. I remember Bobby Robson had gone to Barca at the same time and Barca were building this weapon of a team. But Capello very quietly put together a team that beat them to La Liga with Redondo as the holding midfielder, Clarence Seydorf and Christian Carambu as the engine of his midfield, um, Raul as the 10, and then Pedrag Miatovic and Davor Sucre up front. Christian Panucci and Roberto Carlos to set the fullbacks. Hierro, and I think it was Ivan Helguera, if, if memory serves, they were the centre-backs, and, and um, Bodo Wildner was the goalkeeper. And I remember watching that team, and it would go on to win the Champions League the following year. Capello only stayed the one year, was sacked because the football wasn't entertaining enough, <laughs> even though they won the league. Um, and he was just, he was ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. He played in midfield with, with uh, McManaman under Del Bosch and, and would win a Champions League with him as well. And got sold to Milan um, for about 11 million. He, he never wanted to leave. Again, it was just a decision made based on money. Went there, big salary. They gave him a house. They gave him a car. He ruined his knee in like his second or third training session there. Didn't kick a ball for two and a half years and refused his salary for the entire time because he felt he wasn't earning it. 
He even tried to move out of the house and give back the car they gave him. But they were like, no, look, the house is yours. The car is yours. Keep them. He refused to take his salary for two and a half years. Imagine a player doing that now. Absolutely no chance. Not a hope would have happened. And like that was, that would have been about, you know, two million euro, three million euro a year back then. Huge money in the early 2000s. And he was giving that back because he felt he wasn't earning it. Um, speaks to the character of the man. And, and that's kind of a big part of, you know, the players I've picked. Redondo, Zanetti, Maldini, Baresi, uh, Keane, characters, leaders, just uh, lads that will go to war for you and consistently show up. And, and that's, you know, that was one of the things with him was he, you know, b- before, he went to, before he went to Milan, he was just so frequently there. Um, just a ridiculously good player. Yeah, you mentioned the the the, Man United, the Old Trafford game. You forget how good he was in that game um, for Madrid. Um, he he was signed. Didn't this was when Madrid had a new manager every one or two seasons at that time. Um, wasn't it the Tenerife manager who took him as well when he left? Yeah, Jorge Valdano. That's it. Yeah. Who would go on to become the general manager of Real? He he was a Tenerife manager. Um, and just f- literally fell in love with him. He's obviously in Argentine as well, but fell in love with him um, and, and brought him to Milan or to Madrid with him. And he spent six years at Madrid. Now think of think of Madrid and, and all the players that they have, the great players they've had in their history. In six years, he worked his way into being considered one of the best foreign players they've ever had. If they had Puskas and De Stefano and. You know, Seedorf and Carlos and uh, Sedan and Figo and all these incredible players. But like he is, when people talk about an all time great Real Madrid team, he's considered one of the best foreigners and a member of their all time best 11 for six years. That the level he played at, at Real was just ludicrous. Yeah, just a player that's not talked about enough. Um, out with probably Madrid fans and, and just obviously football football like students you know, about self I remember talking about him on Twitter a few years ago and somebody tried to make the argument that the reason that he, that he wasn't a great player and the reason he wasn't a great player is because he had 29 Argentine caps <laughs> forgetting that he was banished from the Argentine team for a couple of years by Daniel Passarella because he refused to cut his hair because Passarella made it a rule that no player could have long hair so Batistuta cut his hair and a bunch of others cut their hair and he refused outright. I'm not cutting my hair. I'm keeping it the way it is. And he was banished from the national team. That's just ridiculous. Eh? That's just scary. Um, that, that That's the sort of mentality. That's crazy Argentinians. That's all I can say. That's just, that sums them up fairly well. Um, I, I love that pick. Um, any any player who played in that Madrid all white is, is, a, is, a, is a great choice for me. Um, right, so how are you doing the next day, Dave? Are the wingers or are you, are you going more attacking midfielders? How are you um, One started out as a winger, became an attacking midfielder, moved into central midfield. Um, the other was an attacking midfielder. So the first one off the right-hand side, flexing into a, an attacking midfield role, is Michael Laudrup. Um, he, is, he is my favourite player of all time. Um, from seeing highlights of him at Juve, being part of that the dream team at Barcelona and not part of the dream team the best player in the dream team 
of Barcelona under Johan Cruyff to making the controversial move to Real Madrid and playing in central midfield with Redondo. And that was what sealed it for me. Those two together were just ridiculous. Um, and then like ending his career in Japan and then with Ajax, part of that Danish dynamite team that took the world by storm in 86, missed the 92 Euros because he fell out with the manager. Brilliant at, at the 96 Euros. Yeah, Michael Laudrup for me, as talented a footballer as we've ever seen. And when you hear people talk about him, and don't mean normal people, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, your Johan Cruyffs and Michel Platini's. They say this is the most talented player they ever saw. This is the most talented player. He just, he would glide through games with an ease that you just don't see. Players just don't play like him anymore. Like Louis Figo was a great player, but he wasn't this kind of player. Um, as a passer, a dribbler, it just different class, absolutely different class. And, you know, to me, the great what if of Liverpool, he'd agreed a three-year contract with Bob Paisley. He was due to sign for Liverpool and Liverpool tried to tack on a fourth year and he went to Lazio. So, you know, a great what if, but won four league titles in a row with Barca and a European Cup, moved to Real and immediately won the title with them. Um, absolutely sensational. Won a league title with, with Juve, won a league title with, with Ajax. Different class of footballer. Unquestionably my favourite footballer of all time. And um, will always will always be in my all-time favourite eleven. Yeah, like this is a player that I've seen loads of now um, due to people like yourselves talking about him and how good he was and how instrumental and um, I'm much more familiar with, with little brother um, obviously playing in Scotland for those seasons as well but um, the the highlights and the clips that I got to go back and see an absolute majestic footballer he's given me my favourite moment on 11 Pieces of Me when I've done it uh, one of the one of the ladies uh, Emma who does Man the Post shows is from Barcelona um, and a season ticket holder and this was her dad's favourite player and the player that you know he would tell her stories about and got her into football and that and you know it was one of those emotional stories that the true meaning of you know what 11 Pieces of Me is all about those memories and the, the favourite moments and mm. she was in tears talking about it so it just sums up what players can do for us fans and and it's why obviously like I, everybody knows that I'm kind of taking a sabbatical from, from modern football just kind of had enough of it, but the, the memories that footballers like Roy Keane for yourself, Dave, you know, and the, the international duty and and the players like Fowler and McAteer for me, just those those first love players almost, um, and obviously loud drop again for yourself because you've seen so much. The, these are the reason I started it, and I made it a point when loud drop first ever came up on on this podcast to to go and really see what I was missing and just. Look, I can't add any more intelligence on what you've said, but just an absolute majestic footballer. And as you say, what the the legends that we know of in the in the Cruyffs and those type of players who talk about them, like we can't really add much more to credibility than than those guys. No. that's the thing. I mean, when Johan Cruyff says this guy is the best footballer in the world, uh, which he said when when Maradona's peak ended. 
Laudrup was the best, became the best player in the world. He was the best player in the world for three or four years. Um, and he was just ridiculous. And like, even the, the Swansea players, like he, when he went to Swansea as a manager, I think he was 46 maybe when he took over there. And they all said like, he's the best player in training by a mile. <laughs> he was at 46. He was just running the show, dribbling past people. Like he's the greatest inspiration for Andreas Iniesta, who yeah, I'm sure we all agree is, is one of the greatest midfielders we've ever seen. And he will tell you like Michael Laudrup is my favorite player. Xavi will tell you Michael Laudrup is my favorite player. He was just an iconic figure at Barca, then at Real. Had such a bizarre career, like the decision to just head off to Japan um, at 32 when he still could have played top-class football for a bunch more years. Retired at 34. His last season at Ajax, he was just sensational. 11 goals in 21 league games. The Eredivisie couldn't touch him. And um, he just decided to retire. He just decided he'd had enough. And, um, yeah, I mean, just did things his own way. And that's kind of what I've always loved about him. It was just he did things his own way. He didn't care about traditions or anything like that. He just wanted to do things his way, live his life, enjoy football. And when he played, I mean, there's just things he would do, like the, his the, his feet, the, the ability to go one way, go the other his balance, his passing, little lofted balls over the top for a Mario. Oh, just sensational. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I think the biggest thing you can say about him as well is he was so good that he's, he, he's even not hated by Barca fans. Mm. He joined their arch rivals and then, as you say, won the league with them immediately and he's not hated. Like, Figo is, like, despised. Like, yeah. literally. Like, it's almost like they hate seeing his name, but Laudrup still goes down as one of the greatest players in, in history, if not the greatest. And that, in, again, includes a, a Cruyff in there and, and obviously for, for younger fans, Messi. And funnily enough, part of that midfield at Real, which was those two in the middle, Laudrup and Redondo, the right winger in that team, often played left wing, mostly right wing, was Luis Enrique, who... <laughs> who left Real the same summer as Laudrup and went to Barca. <laughs> and again, is adored on both sides. No no feeling of, of hard, being hard done by. I do think in part with Laudrup and with Figo, it was because their contracts ran out. They left on free transfers as free agents. It wasn't like Figo who sort of did a backroom deal to go, in truth... I don't think Figo ever thought, and I, I've seen documentaries that have suggested this, that Figo sort of signed the contract thinking, well, this guy hasn't a hope of winning the election at Real. So I'll, I'll sign this, and then I can use that as leverage to get a new contract with Barca. Um, but I think that's always what it was with Barca, was that, you know, the the club didn't know he was leaving. He did it underhanded. And he left, and Laudrup and, and Louis Enrique were, were much more upfront about it. Yeah, yeah, it could be. Um, I, I I can't really remember the the Figo time, how how good he was for Barcelona. Obviously, most of the time I remember is the is the Real stuff. But yeah, like Laudrup's on a on another level. I think. I remember. 
in the Champions League, the first time I really saw Figo play, he played for Barca in the Champions League against United. He played one wing and Rivaldo played the other. And they absolutely tortured United. It was embarrassing how different, how, how much of a different level those two were at to the uh, to a great United team, like a great United team, and those two just tormented them nonstop. Yeah, I might I might need to go back and watch the Figo stuff um, just just out of curiosity because he was levels ahead during periods of his career. But yeah, I I love the Michael Lodrick but more so because of how much he means to other people now. And it's just great hearing Woods talking about him. And as I say, Brian was the one I had most knowledge of, um, who who paled in comparison. To, he was brilliant for Rangers, though. I that mean, Rangers team with him and Gaza, they were that was a great team. Yeah, that yeah that nineties nineties Scottish football was fun for me growing up, and um, due to due to the, the Rangers team especially um, in the middle of the nine in a row, I believe. So, right, um, who's the next? Winger attacking midfielder. Zinedine Zidane. Yes. Um, so he's the one that wasn't initially in my team. So initially, I'd gone with Matthias Zammer mm. as my sweeper with Nesta and Brazy in front of him, Zanetti and Maldini as wingbacks, Keenan Redondo as a double pivot, Laudrup as a 10, and then my front two. But it, it was, that was mostly because I wanted to go with that shape or I thought I did anyway, and I loved Zammer. I mean, Zammer in 96 at that Euros was just on a different level. The following year for Dortmund, when he wins the Champions League, player who had a bit of a rough career, moved from midfield to sweeper and was just, you know, European player of the year. Ridiculous. But Zidane just has to be in the team. I mean, he just has to be in the team. Um, from seeing him at Bordeaux, when he scored that incredible half volley from about 40 yards in the UEFA Cup and got them to the UEFA Cup final um, to, to Juve and how just how brilliant he was there. And then on to Real as the world record signing, um, the, the, the second Galactico to land after Figo. He, he was just perfect. I mean, 6-1, but so elegant, so graceful, that balance, his dribbling ability, uh, the best first touch I've ever seen. Um, any part of his body didn't have to be his foot. He could kill a ball with his shoulder. Ridiculous. Um, but like a, a big unit with a nasty side as well. Everybody remembers the ninety the 2006 World Cup final, obviously, but he'd been sent off a bunch of times before that. Um, wasn't, wasn't afraid to kick somebody if he felt like he needed to kick them, but just as perfect an attacking midfielder as you'll ever find. His creativity, his vision, his inventiveness. Like I say, the dribbling was incredible. Didn't have great great pace, but could always find a way to get free from defenders. Sensational. Absolutely sensational for, for Juve and Real. And obviously for France, two goals in the World Cup final in 98. Was the best player at that 06 World Cup. And, and incredibly, at the age of 34... The best player in that World Cup, he just retires, just walks away from football. And his last act on a football pitch <laughs> was to put his forehead through the, through the chest of, of Matarazzi. Um, yeah, just Zinedine Zidane. Like, what a player. Him and Carlos on the left-hand side for Real Madrid. And him just receiving the ball and, like, 
instantly flicking it between his legs for Carlos on the overlap is just it's one of my abiding memories in football. It's something I always think of is just Sedan with the first touch and then just the flick through the legs and Carlos would be absolutely flat out there in the left wing and he'd always find him perfectly. Um yeah, Zinedine Zidane. I mean, I just I don't know how anybody could watch him play and not fall in love with with him and with football. Yeah, um, I mean, it's quite easy to see why I fell in love with Real Madrid um, in this period of time. You know, the two players you've just mentioned, um, Carlos was in my my all time eleven as well for for the very reason. We've all seen the flick from Zidane. You know, when the goalkeeper kicks out as well, as you mentioned, the 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 flicks to Carlos on a regular basis. Um, that that Champions League final goal um, up at Hamden up here as well. Um, I I seen the man that day just walking about with the team. Mm. The man is like he, he's just such a presence about him. The, the he's awesome. huge. Yeah, he's just phenomenal. Um, the even the 2006 final, the penalty dink. You know, yeah. So dinks obviously not mean to against Buffon. Yeah, like <laughs> not Buf- against some scrub. Against the greatest goalkeeper the game has ever seen. And he does that in a World Cup final. Imagine how big your testicles need to be <laughs> to do that. To not even to even think about doing that, let alone do it. Oh, different. and what a way to end your career! Like, is there a better way to finish? I mean, he's already won one. <laughs> like nobody like Matt Ratsy, so at least he got you stuck ahead of him. Exactly. <laughs> That's the thing. Stick the forward into him, and away you go. Um, and you know, like. The, the, this is this is petty, and I admit this is really petty. But one of the first things that made me fall in love with him, before I knew much about him, I'd only seen him in the UEFA Cup for Bordeaux. I, I didn't really know a whole bunch about him. He's the guy that ended Eric Cantona's international career. When he burst onto the scene, it was like, right, enough of you. You're too much hassle. Let's have this guy in. And it just, I always, because, you know, Cantona had, had broken my heart a bunch of times as, as a young as a young teenager um, with, with United and, and lost his international place to Zidane and, and that endeared him to me. And then, you know, watching him go to Juve and watching them lose Champions League finals with him in the team, that brilliant midfield with him and Davids and, and Antonio Conte and Deschamps, um, you know, and then seeing him go to Real and finally win the Champions League and, you mentioned that goal. I mean, that that's the best goal anyone's ever scored in a Champions League final. Yeah. He has absolutely no right to score that goal on his left foot from that range <laughs> on a dropping ball. Yeah, the, the ball had snow on it coming down yeah. the bed. Nevis, it felt like. Um, just, yeah, just filthy. Just, as you say, so tall. So he covered so much of the pitch with a lack of pace. Um, Mr. Drinkle, you've been very quiet. This is a player you can surely get involved with. Yeah, I mean, Zidane growing up was some, like, mythical being. Um, she, you know, like, as I say, I always say the Premier League, it's like, you've got your Beckhams, your Henri's, etc. But then, it's, even if you just think about any footballer from the early 2000s, when, when I'm talking about here, it's like, it's just Zidane. I've probably never seen him play at that point. It was just like, I just know of Zidane for some reason. And the probably the first time I, I saw him properly... Um, was probably the 06 World Cup, mid-30s. And going off memories of me being 11 or 12 back then, 
seemingly carried a team, and I've got the team in front of me that was in the final. This is a team that has Henri, Ribéry, Vieira, Makélélé, Turam. It, it, and to almost carry a team that, I mean, I've just listed some of the greatest players ever, or in modern mm. history at least, it, it, it's a scary thought, but I mean, and just to go back to something we mentioned with the Roy Keane thing, they could have had a midfield with, Zad, with Zidane and Keane because they refused to sign Zidane because they had uh, Tim Sherwood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It could have that could have been like Imagine. the great that could have the Blackburn having the greatest team ever <laughs> with Alan Shearer up front, <laughs> Keane winning the ball, giving it to Zidane. Zidane create the chance for Shearer. They never would have lost. They yeah. would have won every game. It's a scary thought. Like Blackburn could be the biggest powerhouse in foot in English football. <laughs> I want to meet the man though who made the dis like I want to meet the scout who gave the report on Zidane that led what whoever made the decision to think I mean, he doesn't sound any better than Tim Sherwood. <laughs> wasn't, it, wasn't, it, wasn't it like five hundred grand they could have got him for or something? Oh. And Tim Sherwood, don't get me wrong, Tim Sherwood was a good player. But yeah, no. Yeah, he was Zidane's left big toe. Like incomparable I mean Zidane might go down as one of the greatest of all time like genuinely in that discussion if you're talking about greatest players of all time um, he had it all like his Juventus time for me was just it was probably individually his best performances um, but as a superstar just at Madrid um, and from all accounts from everybody who like the English players who, who moved over to Madrid and I've spoken about Zidane, he's just like the utmost professional in training as well. It was just like, he wanted to get in there, get training done, and, you know, go. Like, mm. that was that was just the man himself, which was spectacular. And again, like, when you hear his peers, like, when you hear Roy Keane talk about him, and Roy Keane doesn't give praise to anybody, and, like, when he talks about Zidane, his voice kind of softens, and his eyes sort of light up as he thinks about yeah. this... Like 6-1. What could have like been a tank. Blackburn? <laughs> That's the thing. That's the thing. I mean, what Blackburn could have had. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, look, Jack Walker won, you know, built them, uh, gave them the money as it was to build a league title winning team under Kenny. But like if, if they'd signed Keane and they'd signed Zidane, I mean, you're, you're talking about a Premier League dynasty. They'd eventually obviously have lost Zidane. He would have wanted to move on somewhere. Keane may have moved on the way Shearer did. But, they would have won. They would have won three or four titles. There's no doubt. Yeah, I mean, the the thing is, like, you never know if the the guys would have moved on as well because if they, if they're more successful, there's no reason for them to move on. Whereas Shearer obviously moved on due to, like, he become too big for Blackburn almost, um, and he never really looked to go ever abroad, didn't he? It was always once he went to Newcastle that was mm. that was him done. It was between Newcastle and United, wasn't it? Newcastle United, and he, yeah, and he picked um, picked the tune, and you know, the rest is history. The rest is history. Yeah, his his goal scoring record is just phenomenal. It just it amazes me every time you look at it. But... Right then, Dave, two slots left. The uh, the exciting positions, shall we say? Yeah. So I've gone for a nine and a nine and a half ten an out-and-out striker and sort of a an off-the-striker type. So the off-the-striker type is Roberto Baggio, who, to me, is still one of the most enjoyable players to ever watch. As a, you know, it, it, 
the cheek he played the game with, the dribbling ability, the inventiveness, his ludicrous balance, um, kind of burst onto the scene with Fiorentina, became known to the world at the 1990 World Cup when he scored the goal of the tournament, moves to, to Juve for a big, big fee that summer, brilliant for Juve, goes to Milan, and again, like Laudrup, probably didn't live up to the potential he had, like... Baggio was the best player in the world at like the 94 World Cup. But of course, that World Cup, he's most remembered for missing the penalty. Yeah. But people forget that if it wasn't for him, they wouldn't have gotten to that final. I mean, he played with an injury for most of that tournament, carried them past Bulgaria, carried them through the semifinals. Just a, a stupidly gifted player who, you know, similar. I mentioned Maradona earlier in the kickings he used to get. Baggio was the same. Teams were just ruthless. They'd hack him and kick him and pull out of him and drag him. But he he was just, he, he was sensational. And him and Loudrup for me, like, if I'm going to, you know, go to YouTube and watch an old compilation, it's it's Baju and Loudrup because there's just a joy in watching them play and the ability that they had and just how different they were to everything else. And, like, remember, Baggio suffered a torn ACL in the 80s. When most players didn't recover from that injury back then, he didn't just recover. He went on to have a great career. Um, was great for Bologna, great for Brescia late in his career. Probably underperformed at international level in terms of only 56 caps. But like I say, the star of the 94 World Cup played in three World Cups for Italy. And um, I, I just a, a player that I absolutely loved. Yeah, I mean, it's just a shame that he is known or remembered for in that 94 World Cup for the penalty because, as you say, he he genuinely carried that Italy team. The 94 team was probably the first I remembered or I learned of Baggio. Um, too young for the 90, obviously seen, seen much more since. But, um, yeah, it's just a shame. I, the, the hairstyle here as well. Um, Guy, Baggio for you? Yeah, never seen him play. Well, there's a few things about Baggio. <laughs> Everyone's played, or my age, played the free kick flash game on the computer. Everyone's played that. Um, but I, I'm not sure if Dave's seen it. I think Eddie or whoever's on the EPL Index account has tagged him in something. Netflix are doing a Baggio documentary. That's coming out in May. So if you, there's a trailer for that, Dave, that you might want to check whilst you, if you're on mute in the background or something. Because, uh, yeah, it, look, it looks uh, interesting, but... If you're getting a if you're getting a Netflix documentary, I and mean, we've only seen what Maradona, Pele, etc., get single documentaries on them. So Baggio, I think that speaks volumes of it. But that free kick game was was sublime. Just saying. Yeah, I, I can't say I've heard of this game, Dave. Yourself, you heard of it? No, that game is a little bit after my time. I think I'm just looking. I've actually about six different people have tagged me in this because uh, <laughs> my adoration of the divine ponytail. Is well known. Um, just you know, like like Loudrop, like Zidane, just players that were just a joy. Players that you could just sit back and they get the ball, and you'd immediately subconsciously sit forward because you just expected something to have. And like Loudrop, kind of just had the career he wanted to have, played for the teams he wanted to play for. You know, I mean, he shouldn't have been playing for Bologna in the, the late 90s. He shouldn't have been playing for Brescia. 
he should have been at a Milan or an Inter, but he, he played for Juve, played for Milan, played for Inter, was adored by all. Like, all fans in Italian football loved him, absolutely adored him. Um, like, his personal philosophies on life as well are great. And I've read his book, uh, Goal in the Sky. It's in Italian. I managed to get a, a, a badly transcribed or badly translated version, which didn't make entire sense because it was badly translated. But it gave you some insight into him. And, like, you want to talk about holding grudges. <laughs> This guy held the grudge. So, yeah, and again, you know, a strong character, like like most of my team, like the, all four in midfield, um, like all the defenders, just a, a character of the game and somebody who could do ridiculous things with a football. Yeah, I mean, his stats for Italy, I mean, bear in mind, I'm taking this off Wikipedia, so we know how reliable that can be. So, I mean, Dave, you can correct me if, if you know if I'm wrong, but it, it, it's just saying he's the only Italian to score in three different World Cups. Mm. And nine goals, he's got the most goals scored for Italy. So I think it just shows you the standard. Again, we, we spoke a lot about Italian football throughout this, this show, and I think that sums up a lot. You know, when you think of even the even all the players that Italy have had during this period that we're talking about, and and he's scoring in three World Cups and and the record goals, um, well joint with Vieri and Rossi, but still, you know, he's he's right up there, and as you say, he's he's just such an icon for Italian football. He is, and I mean that was that was shown where, you know, he he was out of the national team picture. He'd stopped playing international football in '99. And when he announced he was retiring in 2004, he was called up to the national team one more time just to play a game because they wanted him to have a farewell where fans could come and, you know, and and give their appreciation to a guy who'd given so much to the game and given everybody so much enjoyment. And he he just, yeah, for me, you're not going to get players like him anymore. I love the pick. And he is the first time... Dave, that he's been picked since I've done this. So it's always great to have a new player included. Um, right, 11th and final striker. The main number nine. The main number nine, um, or nine, Ronaldo. The real Ronaldo. The phenomenon. Um, I've just never, ever seen anything like him. He's the, he's the most talented footballer I've ever seen. And if not for injuries... He's the only player, I think, that would have challenged Maradona, in my personal view. Um, at PSV, he was sensational. Despite a bad knee injury, he still basically averaged a goal a game. 54 goals in 57 games. Now, at Cruzeiro, when he came through in Brazil, 44 goals in 47 games. Goes to Barcelona, plays one season... 49 games, 47 goals. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Goes to Inter Milan, Serie A, the defensive league, 34 goals in 47 games. Then he goes to the 98 World Cup and his career is altered forever. Whatever happened the night before the game altered his career forever. Came back, 28 games, 15 goals, Injury plague season. The next year, his knee explodes. 
and he basically loses three years of his career. He plays eight games in 99-2000, doesn't kick a ball in 2000-2001, comes back the following season, 10 games, seven goals in the league. Like, even after missing the best part of two and a half years, he still comes back and scores for fun. Goes to Real and is, like, while not anywhere close to the same level of player, his goal-scoring record, 30 and 44, 31 and 38, 24 in 45. He's still an elite-level goal scorer. Of course, he's gone to the 2002 World Cup with Brazil, finishes at the top scorer, scores in the final, has that stupid haircut. Yeah. Um, he, he was just... He was just incredible. Like, naturally gifted, lightning quick, super strong, built like a tank, great dribbling ability, natural cheek and creativity, just beat defenders and goalkeepers and make them look foolish. Uh, Just, to me, the two greatest strikers of the era of football I've watched are him and, and Van Basten. And unfortunately, we lost both of them to injuries before they ever fully got to become what they should have become. Van Basten, the ankle injury caused by Jurgen Koller, um, at, retired at 28. And Ronaldo, his knee, what, well, whatever happened in 98, and then his knee exploding the following, what, two years later? Just horrendous injuries. But... You know, he go to Milan, he had another bad injury there, same knee. Went back to Brazil with Corinthians, 2009. So this is 16 years after his debut. He's now in his mid-30s. And he bangs in 23 and 38 and then 12 and 17 and 27 the next next season. Like his Brazil record is is ludicrous. 62 goals in 98 games. He he would have he would have unquestionably broken every scoring record, I think, if it wasn't for the injuries. But his career record of three hundred and fifty two and five hundred and eighteen games is still very, very special. And everything up to that knee injury is is off the charts. I don't think we'll ever see a number nine like him again. He could just he could do everything, could play in a two, could play by himself, play in a three. Could have been a 10 if he'd wanted to. The, the best all-round striker I've ever seen. Yeah, and like you mentioned like everything that he has achieved. And just, as you say, imagine what he would have achieved without the, obviously, whatever happened in 98. And, and the injuries more so. Um, because, obviously, he then struggled with mobility slightly in the, in the latter years after that and still achieved what he did at Madrid and, and Milan and, and later at Corinthians. But, he was a player, again, I've said it numerous times, uh, as you can imagine many times this player has picked. I didn't appreciate when I was younger because he was so popular. Um, and obviously, m- more so in, in 98, everybody was Brazil fans, it felt like. Um, and, and I supported France um, for the Zidane factor. Same. Um, so I, I never truly appreciated Ronaldo. I was at that young stubbornness, you know, you could, you almost couldn't appreciate the players you didn't like, sort of thing. Um, and it I've was, been... I've been an avid reader of World Soccer magazine since about 94. My parents' attic has boxes of old editions. And I remember I'd heard of them. I hadn't, you know, PSV, you didn't really see them. 
they weren't a team that were in the Champions League with him. Um, but you'd see like clips of him on World of Sport and whatever else that would, you know, have highlights of of the Eredivisie. And I remember when he signed for Barcelona, he signed for thirteen point three million pounds. And I remember reading a quote in World Soccer magazine. Bobby Robson was been interviewed about this group of players he'd bought that summer. And they bought some some really talented players, but this was like the this was the, the star attraction. This was like the, the big catch that they got. And Bobby Robson said, I was offered Alan Shearer. I turned him down because I wanted to buy Ronaldo. And like at the time, Alan Shearer was, you know, was Alan Shearer. He was by far the best striker in the Premier League. He was banging in goals left, right and centre. This was the same year he would have left to go to Newcastle, 96. Mm-hmm. So the, the fee would have been around the same 15 million for Shearer. Um, Shearer was coming off seasons of 31 in 40, 34 in 42 and 31 in 35, Premier League only. Um, 34, 37 and 37 in all competitions. And I remember thinking, like, you've just turned down by an Alan Shearer <laughs> to sign some fella from PSV. Now, I'm I'm 14 at the time. So, like, you know, you, you're like, you, what are you You're signing this kid that no <laughs> one's ever heard of. You could have Alan Shearer. Like, that summer they signed Louis Enrique on a free, Fernando Couto from Porto, Lauren Blanc came from Auxerre, Vitor Bahia arrived from, from uh, Porto, who Robson had managed before. Um, Stoichkov came back from Parma, having been over there. It was this rebuilt team, and they were just an absolute weapon going forward. They scored 102 goals that season, the most of anybody in La Liga by 17. Uh, they won all the Cups. They won the Cup Winners' Cup, the Copa del Rey, and the Super Cup. And then Robson was moved upstairs to make way for, for Louis van Gaal. And apparently, Ronaldo wasn't keen on this. And um, there was talk of a new contract or whatever. And contract talks broke down. And off he went to Inter Milan for a world record fee and an enormous contract. And, you know, what could have been? If he'd stayed at Barca, maybe he doesn't have the injuries. But he was just, he, he was different. And like everybody who played against them, like even even Nesta, Nesta who pocketed every single defend uh, attacker he came up with, said the only def- uh, the only striker that scared him, and he said scared me. I'd stay awake at night thinking about him, was Ronaldo. Like when when one of the greatest defenders ever is saying that about you, that you kept him awake at night, you were a little bit special. Yeah, I mean, he, he, as you say, he had he was the complete centre forward. His pace running with the ball was quicker than like a sprinter running with with no ball. It was just I've never seen anything like it. You know, any fast player automatically slows down when they've got the ball, but not him. He seemed to speed up. Um, his ability to go round a goalkeeper was just was something else. Um, that round of applause at Old Trafford by the whole stadium. Yeah. Um, like that, that just doesn't happen to normal players. You know that is just unique. Um, the- and that was him. Like much later on in his career, after the horrendous knee injury, after '98, after he'd put on quite a bit of weight. Yeah, he was a very different player. 
but he still tore United to shreds that night. And when the mood would take him, he would go from being just a goal scorer, which is all Real really needed. When you've got Zidane and Figo and Raul behind you, you don't really need to be doing much else other than putting the ball in the back of the net. And yet, what he what he was capable of doing on the, the games where it took him, you know, where he just decided, like, I'm, I'm just going to take over here and, and be mad. It was just still, unlike anything I've seen since, yeah, and like, as I, I mentioned, like the previous, uh, again, this Brazil era for me was just special. Again, due to growing up watching it, um, I just feel that, and and I guess the older ones to us, Dave Carran, who we both know, obviously mm. talks about the the older generation Brazil team, um, and I'm sure in ten, fifteen years' time, there'll be kids telling us that our Brazil team wasn't as good as the the, the Firminos and, and all that sort of thing, but. For me, the, the characters that, that this Brazil era had and the ability, and, and obviously Ronaldo was the leader of it all, um, it was just a special, special time. Um, I'll bring Guy in. He's, he's bound to have a few words to say on, on this man. He was he was in my team, and I literally watched him in one World Cup. <laughs> it's a World Cup that made me support Brazil over my England team, and that's before I was old and couldn't give a toss about England. Um yeah, I mean, that, that 2002 World Cup team, I know it's not uh, a much-loved World Cup, but me waking up um, before school and then watching the game, uh, watching games before school, then ended up watching games in assembly at school. That mm. That's like that's one of my favourite World Cups. I know it's not well-loved, but that team of Ronaldinho, Ronaldo, Riv- I know Rivaldo did that weird fake, Dying thing in that, that World Cup. But like, he, like I think I had Roberto Carlos and stuff in my team as well. It, that that World Cup has, has shaped so many childhood memories from football, and the fact that some bloke who had like a a, a tuft of hair on the front of his forehead just tearing tearing all these world renowned players a new one. It's just like I, I don't know who he is. But I want to see more of him, <laughs> and it was just amazing. Like my favorite, probably non-Liverpool, probably even favorite player of all time is Ronaldinho. But if if I was a few years old, I'm sure Ronaldo would be up there as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Ronaldinho is very much from the the Baggio, Loudrop type of just pure joy to watch. He's probably the last of that. Really. Yeah, like the Very last great now. entertainer yeah. who care who, like George Best is probably the first of that era of player who had all the ability, maybe the most talented player in the world, probably the best player in the world for a couple of years, as Laudra Baggio and um, and Ronaldinho all were, but wanted to live their life as well. I mean, Ronaldinho wanted to go and have parties, and he wanted to go and have you know um, carnival and whatever else, but. I mean, you talk about dancing to the beat of your own drum, and Ronaldo did that as well. He he would disappear off for a week or two <laughs> just to have a party or whatever other type of thing he'd be up to. And like, like guy says that that O2 World Cup is is often frowned upon, but there was something really cool about it. Like, I remember at the time, same type of thing: waking up early to watch games before work, yeah. and then going to work. And 
they were watching it in work. Like work would stop for a couple of hours to watch, well, to watch Ireland play. Um, or, or, you know, when Brazil would play, everybody would crowd in to watch it. And you could have 40 people in a room watching Brazil and laughing at Ronaldo's hair and just been mesmerized by that front three, Ronaldinho, Rivaldo, Ronaldo, Cafu and Carlos bombing down the wings. Uh, Gilberto Silva of Arsenal as the holding midfielder. Just a ridiculous, ridiculous team. Like, yeah, and we laugh at that haircut in, in 2002, but I bet you we all knew somebody who had it. Oh, oh, yeah. Because they wanted to be Ronaldo. And I think that... that now, I won't name names, but there'll be somebody, somebody, a friend of mine, will listen to this because <laughs> he listens to all the stuff I do. And he will know I'm talking about him. Like, you brought shame on our whole group of friends for... <laughs> About six months when you rocked around with that haircut, with your boulder-shaped head, you brought shame on us. We were the people that knew you. That's what we were known as. So, you know, you still owe us for that. It's 19 years later, and we're still holding that grudge. And when you're not around, we still talk about it. <laughs> but, I mean, that, that sums up. Like, you had your, your Cantonas and your Beckhams who were proper icons, you know, people who wanted, like, Cantona with a collar. Like, everybody all of a sudden wanted to have a collar up and... I think I had every single Beckham hairstyle that there was, you know, mm. just and then but Ronaldo's was just that one that you either mocked it or you loved them that much that you would mm. copy. And I, I, that says just as much about the the player um than, than football ability because players like him can influence so many in so many ways. And again, as you said, guy, like like with with the Ronaldinos that they just they don't make players like that anymore. Like there's no. just no they're just players now, almost. Like, I love Messi, but it's almost boring how good he is. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just not like... Messi could do everything Ronaldinho could do, technically. But Ronaldinho could go from having the worst game you've probably ever seen a footballer have to taking on 12 people and yeah. scoring like a back heel. Like, yeah, I think I, I may have said when I was doing this for me, Yaya Toure is somewhat like that. He may have been the last one, because he had 30 seconds every game. He would do this. Yeah, he'd just decide, I'm the best player here. Everybody get out the way. Yeah. He'd go and he'd score, beat four players, bang it in from 25 yards, and then go, right, that's me till next week. See you later, lads. And he just go and stand around <laughs> for a while. It, yeah, we don't... See, I mean, Neymar can do it a little bit, but he's, you know, he's wasting Wasted his career it. playing in France. Um, but yeah, those those kind of maverick players that they're, you know, Gaza was another one that would just turn it on at times. And again, he unfortunately now like I know what you're saying about Scotland was a great time for Scottish football, but Gaza shouldn't have been playing for Rangers at that Absolutely point in his career. Yeah. He should have been in one of the top leagues. Obviously, it didn't go all that well from at Lazio, but just yeah, play like as Guy said, like Messi is every bit as talented as Ronaldo and has had a much better career than Ronaldo. Because Messi views football as a job. Ronaldo, Cristiano, doesn't have a fraction of the talent that Ronaldinho had or that Ronaldo had. But he's had a much better career than both of them because he views it as a job. They viewed it as something they did because they loved it. They did it for the love of the game. And that's what's been lost. The love of the game. And Who in modern football plays with the smiles that those guys have? Like, anywhere in modern football, who plays with that smile? You don't see it. You just don't see it. Alberto Moreno. There it is. (laughs) That's because he doesn't realise what he's doing. He doesn't know what he's doing. No one's told him he's a footballer. He just goes out and they run a picture of a car alongside him. He just chases it like a dog. Um, 
yeah, uh, there's not many. I mean, if you think of the best players in the world right now, there's there's not really anyone that you think of that just plays for pure joy and that can bring you that pure joy. I think Suarez at Liverpool was. But... He was, but he Suarez was, and he was, but he was a lunatic. He was. A, that's the thing, and Suarez. Was all about winning. That's why Suarez had those kind of mental breaks where he bit people because he felt the pressure of needing to win and needing to carry a bunch of players who didn't deserve to be on the same pitch as him. Like that's what happened at Liverpool. That's what happened at Ajax. He was by far the best player. Happened for Uruguay. By far the best player. Goes to Barca where he's not the best player and the pressure's not on him. And he loves life. And at Barca, I would say Barca era Suarez played for pure joy. Mm. With a big smile on his face, just delighted with life. Um, I, I, Gareth Bale <laughs> plays for love of golf. <laughs> <laughs> there's not many. There's not. There's I nobody at the very top of the game. That Bobby you'd say, for a couple of years, maybe, but I don't think he was ever. Bobby's not in the not in this conversation. Bobby think. wasn't. Yeah, Bobby wasn't like a, a world class level uh, talent. He, he performed at a world class level for, for a, a couple of years. But, yeah. yeah, but not not to the same level of ability, and and couldn't just dominate games the way these boys could. But yeah, that'd be that'd be my eleven: Paluca, Zanetti, Nesta, Baresi, Maldini, Laudrup, Keane, Redondo, Zidane, Baggio, Ronaldo, and my manager wouldn't really suit any of them. Uh, but the formation is 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 one of his. He managed five great teams: Milan. Juve, no, sorry, Milan, Real, Roma, Juve, and Fabio Capello. Capello, yeah. In a suit, looking like a mafia hitman, the, the horn-rimmed glasses, a genius of a manager, the best winning record of any England manager ever. And yeah. well, you know, certain players that he didn't coddle and and that's the thing about him. He didn't coddle players. He was he was hard. He was a great player himself. Um for for Roma, Juve and Milan, he'd been a great player. But I mean, his honours as a manager, he won four league titles with Milan, he won two league titles a decade apart with, with Real, he won a league title with Roma, and he won two league titles with, with Juve and the, the powers that be in Italian football can say that they revoked those titles all they want. Um, he still won those titles. They're his titles, and they can't really take them off him. So yeah, it, Fabio Capello would be would be my manager. Just that image of that image of Capello on the touchline, in his Armani suit, arms crossed, looking furious as his team win three 0 And the reason he's furious is because they've wasted a third goal. Two 0 was more than enough. They weren't going to concede, so what are you scoring too many goals for? Uh, this is exactly why I wanted you on, because you went to the thought of actually thinking who would be your manager as well. Uh, Roy Keane to be the captain, I assume? No, I'm going to give Baresi the captaincy um, because I don't want Keane getting too wound up <laughs> and I don't want him screaming in the face of referees. So I just want 
I want that younger Keane, that that ball of energy, box to box, dominant ball winning, driving forward, getting in the box, scoring goals, just aggressively shouting in his Irish accent at all these Italian people. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much Ho- holding the standard. <laughs> Not a clue what he's going on about. He wouldn't have had to shout at a single member of this team. It's Roy Keane. <laughs> he because talent-wise, he's the worst player in the eleven, without question. But he would outwork everybody. And I think that would drive this team on. Like I said earlier, big characters, winners, mavericks. Just a beautiful blend of, of genius all over the place. And, you know, Capello just... In, in, in an Armani suit. That's all I want. Capello and Armani suit on the sideline. It's mad that you've picked an 11 players that Roy Keane is the worst of the 11. Like, yeah. <laughs> that says it all. Um, apart from the ones, obviously, you've mentioned going through it, was there any players who you contemplated putting in, any just missed out? Yeah, Matthias Zammer, like I mentioned earlier, was one. Um, Pavel Nedved came close, but that is more based on a couple of seasons where I, he was just sensational that Lazio team like that's I loved that Lazio team under Sven Goran Eriksson and I, and I almost went with Sven as manager to make up for the fact that I didn't pick any of his players um, Maradona's the obvious one but again like I left him out because I think he's just yeah. deserving of his own platform um, aside from that I loved Raul I absolutely loved Raul at Real. I loved Savicevic, but I, I couldn't have too many Mavericks in the team. They they probably would have just gone off on the piss or something for a fortnight. Um, no, I think that's pretty. Samuel uh, Matthias Samuel was the closest. He was in the the original team when I thought of it, and then I changed the shape. and And he he unfortunately is the one that has to drop out. But Zanan has to be in. So yeah, Zammer is the Zammer would be my twelfth man. Can play if I want to move the, the formation. He can go in there. He can play right back. He can play centre back. He can play centre midfield. So I think in him I have the uh, the perfect answer to to any problems mid game. Yeah, look, I'm glad you changed it. Any any excuse to talk about Zidane does me fine. Well, that's a phenomenal team. That might be the greatest eleven put together with great reasoning and a manager to boot. Um, so thank you very much for, for jumping on. Do you want to let everybody know where they can find Two Footed Podcast and anything else you're up to just now? Yeah, Two Footed Podcast, uh, I record it with Guy every day. It's normally just me. Uh, on a Friday, Guy joins me and we preview the weekend's games. Then Monday, I kind of review the weekend's games. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday is is. Tuesdays and Wednesdays are kind of news days, or if there's no news, I just pick a topic and talk about it. Uh, Thursdays is Twitter questions, so any questions that people send me, I I ask for them. People send me questions, and I just talk about them. Uh, So we release it every day at 4 p.m. on the EPL Index podcast, so you'll find it on any podcast provider, uh, EPL Index podcast. And um, you'll find me on Twitter, at Two Footed Pod, and of course, Anfield Index is is still home, so... Eight years, eight years strong this year uh, of, e- of Anfield Index podcasts and Anfield Index Pro, obviously, is the subscription side of that. Yeah, as I say, that's where I first listened to podcasts was, was yourself and John Ritchie over in 
on AI. I think it was just as as Brendan was getting the boot almost. Um, I think he, the first podcast I listened, it might have been a Brendan Rogers podcast actually, all in one. Um, Guy, for yourself, let everybody know what you're up to and where they can find you. Uh, yeah, at Guy Drinkles, same stuff, AI and stuff. Um, probably one for the more Liverpool fans, maybe Blackburn fans and um, Celtic fans, etc. We're doing, we've done a 70th birthday celebration podcast for Kenny Dalglish's birthday. Um, and that's out, I think it's on the paid side tonight at 10, I think I scheduled it for. Mm. But it's on the free side tomorrow morning, so um, that that's free if you check out... Um, at Anfield Index, that'll be there. So if you've got any um, liking of Kenny Dalglish, there'll be some stories and stuff from like Dave's yeah. on it. We had Jan Mulby and um, we had Paul Dalglish's son and stuff like that on it. So I uh, I was lucky enough to hear it last night, and it is Trev Downey kind of narrates it and, and weaves it all together, and it is it's very very good. Jonathan Northcroft is on there as well, but yeah, Mulby and um, Mulby and Paul Dalglish are, are the the star attractions on it. Paul Dugleish is very, very funny. And uh, there's a little teaser. He says he came home one day and found Kenny Dugleish in bed with his mum. And he's never recovered from it. So <laughs> that'll give you a, a hint of what, what Paul's uh, contribution was like. It's very, very good. It's, it's well worth the listen. Like I said, if you're not a subscriber, it'll be out on the free site tomorrow. I think it's I think it's must listen. Yeah, I must. And if Trev's, Trev's part of it, Trev has the voice of an angel. For anyone who hasn't listened to any of his shows, it's... Yeah, and see, this is what annoys me. So me and Trevor from the same town. We're both from Navan in, in County Meath in Ireland. And I'm I'm a townie, so I've got this townie, scumbaggy kind of accent. <laughs> Trev is from just outside the town and has this lovely, refined, nice. soft brogue where he could just, you know, he could read the phone book and you'd listen to him. And yeah. while I'm talking about him... If you're into non-football podcasts, so you're looking for a non-football podcast, The Great Stories, you'll find it on any podcast provider. TheGreatStories.com is the website. Um, it's basically Trev and Neil Poole. Trev reads a short story, and then him and Neil talk about it. It's absolutely brilliant. If you want just a break from football and you're looking for anything to listen to while you're you know, going for a walk or just sitting down in the evening looking to unwind, the great stories with Trev Downey is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, so check that out. Uh, yeah, I, I echo that. I, I have no interest in even what they're reading and what they're talking I genuinely listen to it for Trev's voice. It's just, I, I genuinely can't go, oh, this this man is the man you want. If you're feeling stressed, listen to him speak for half an hour and you feel fine. Um, but as for us, you can find us at Man in the Post on all your social media platforms. Um, me, Dave and Simon are back on Monday evenings, Tuesday morning for you guys. For the, for the Premier League review show. Um, so once you listen to Dave, come and listen to us after that. The Thursday Guys show will be out every Friday. Um, and obviously, 11 Pieces of Me now. Uh, Laura's is out at the moment. Can't remember who's coming out this week. And then obviously, this one will be out when you're listening, um, which is out every Thursday. So three shows a week from ourselves. And we'll have much more with the Euros coming up, which hopefully we'll get Dave and Guy involved in somehow as well. Um, so thank you very much, chaps, again for joining me. It's been a pleasure. No and problem. Cheers for having me, mate. Much appreciated. And always remember to keep your man in the post. <laughs>